Dr. Patrick Moore is an internationally renowned ecologist and environmentalist. Beginning his career as an activist and a leader in the Greenpeace movement, he now concentrates on collaborative efforts aimed at finding environmental solutions. He speaks in lectures frequently at universities, community meetings and conferences. His latest book, Fake Invisible Catastrophes and Threats of Doom, is a critique on the current state of environmental alarmism and propaganda. Welcome, Dr. Moore. It's, um, we're delighted to have you here on the, on the podcast tonight. It's a pleasure to be with you. My ancestors came from your fair island many years ago. Well, that's brilliant. What part of the country did they, did they hail from? Well, the north, uh, Armagh, but uh, it was a, a widow with eight children uh, in the second wave of the potato famine came to eastern Canada and, and various members of their family migrated all over North America, and one of them came here, my grandfather, to Vancouver Island in British Columbia, and I'm sure glad he did because it's a beautiful place. Sure is. Um, it's beautiful down that um, end of the country. Well, I've read your book over the last week and a half, and it's a, it's a fantastic book. For one thing, uh, the GMO, like you, you advocate for GMOs. You, you may notice that I brought up the point uh, that most of the scare stories today, my, my main theme is that they are about things that are either invis invisible, like CO2, radiation, and whatever is bad in GMOs, or very remote, like polar bears and coral reefs, which is why they are used as icons, because the average person can't see for themselves whether they're being given the truth or not about these things. And so it's easy to make up stories about things that nobody can valid, validate for themselves, verify for themselves. So with GMOs, the only reason to be against them from a nutritional point of view would be if there was something bad in them. In other words, harmful, dangerous, negative, or whatever. And if there was something bad in them, you would think they would know what it is and have a name for it and a chemical formula but they don't. And that is because it actually doesn't exist. There is nothing harmful in GMO foods that are marketed in the world today in many different countries. 25 or 30 countries allow GM foods to be grown and marketed for food. And so that, that argument goes out the window. Now then, as soon as you get past that, people say, well, Monsanto, as if the devil has come to uh, destroy us all. And uh, it becomes then more of a political socio uh, argument that has something to do with monopoly or greed or money or I don't know what, but it hasn't got anything to do with what's in the actual vegetable or grain or whatever it is you're talking about that it has, has been produced through using genetic modification, which uh, is actually far too broad a word to be using for that particular technique because we are all genetically modified. None of us are identical to our parents, either one of them. Uh, identical twins are identical because they both came from the same egg fertilized by the same sperm, but they are not identical to their parents no matter what. So we're all genetically modified, if you want to use that term in a, a generic sense, which it's fairly off. Genetics is about your DNA, 
and uh, we're all genetically modified with regard to our DNA as, as your parents split it between the two of them and come up with something unique each time a new person is born or any new animal, anything that's caused by sexual reproduction, which is most of the plants and animals in the world. It made me think about it differently myself, but I just think in Ireland, I think it's, we, we kind of pride ourselves on the, you know, on our, on our produce and stuff like that. And I think some of the stuff that you mentioned in your book, like a uh, Franken, Franken food, I, I'd say that's anti-GMO messaging probably did have an effect probably on my outlook on them. You made some really good points in the book uh, regarding them. It's, it's still the same plant uh, and the, the lives that that could potentially have been saved, I think it was the golden rice you mentioned. With the, yeah, well, that's a case in point where we said, okay, you guys, you might not like genetically modified foods for some obscure reason, but uh, like that they were called bad names, like Terminator Seed. Uh, you know, Terminator Seed meant that these evil seed companies were making uh, genetic modified crops that didn't produce seeds. So therefore, the farmer could not plant them the next year, and that made them beholden to the supplier. Well, there's two problems with that. One, no farmers use the seed from their crops because they're almost always crops that require new seeds each year. Uh, a person who grows a specific breed of corn, for example, or maize, as you may call it, uh, would never buy, would never use the seed from the corn they grew the year before. And that is true of most crops. Almost all farmers buy new seed every year for whatever crop they're growing. So that's one uh, point that makes that argument moot. But the second point is that seedless watermelons and seedless all kinds of other things are produced also with normal agriculture and nobody seems to complain about them, right? It, it, there's, there's all kinds of seedless crops that have been bred through through normal breeding techniques like crossing one type with another to get a, a plant that doesn't have so many seeds in it because a lot of people don't care for the seeds in lemons and limes and tomatoes and and uh, watermelons and other other fruits so, and many many other uh, foods are produced seedlessly so th that argument doesn't hold up uh, it, it, what was the process? Wasn't there some kind of process? Uh, and I had never heard of it before. But they do it with the—is it to breed the normal fruit? It was irradiated, or was there some other chemical process to get the the seeds? Well, the the the, the fact is that for over a hundred years now, long before the uh, genetic modification technique of actually inserting genes from one species into another to give it a beneficial attribute. That's the purpose for it. They're not trying to make them dangerous or, or worse or grow slower. They're trying to make them so they have an advantage over the ones that they were using before. But there are so many breeds and varieties of so many different food crops. I mean, it isn't as if there's any one normal plum right? There's many, many breeds, and they probably mostly all came from the same plum. You know, the, the brassicas, for example, the cabbage family, includes cauliflower, Brussels sprouts, Chinese cabbage, all the cabbages, all the lettuces, right? Those are the brassicas, and they all came from a single species of wild plant. So we have been able, over 10,000 years of breeding plants, 
to create a vast array of crops that look nothing like what they came from in the wild. The original maize was about two inches long, like those baby corns you can buy. I don't know how they do that now, but they do it, obviously. But the, 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 the foot-long corn that we get now, uh, which is sweet corn meant for eating, is a totally different thing than what they started with in the beginning. Um, the other thing is, is that what most people don't know is many of our food varieties have been, been produced with radiation breeding, mutation by radiation, using strong radiation to alter the genetics in the seeds. And they, they do a million seeds and maybe one or two will come out different in a way that is improved. The same thing with chemical treatment of seeds with actually toxic chemicals like colchicine, toxic in the sense that, sense that they are a mutagenic chemical that actually change the genetic structure of the seeds. And every once in a while, something useful comes out of this. So it's a, it's a hit and miss scattergun sort of approach. Whereas genetic engineering, genetic modification as it's used today is a very specifically accurate approach. They know exactly what they are doing. And it's, it's not some kind of random thing like it is when you use either radiation or chemicals. Which, which that has been going on for like since before 1900. Well, not with radiation because they didn't know how to use it until somewhere in the early 1900s. But the methods they're using now though, more often is the CRISPR method where you are not inserting any new genes from other species into the species you're trying to improve, but rather you are turning genes on and off within that genome within that species. You turn off genes that you don't want to be doing what they're doing, and you turn on genes that for some reason are off, and they produce a beneficial result. Of course, beneficial and harmful are value judgments. It's not like black and white necessarily. But when it comes to agriculture, beneficial usually means one of two things, either beneficial to the grower, in other words, it makes them more profitable, because it produces a more desirable product or beneficial to the consumer because it has better nutrition or some other attribute that is considered to be good for a person's health or well-being. So, but you, as you know, after reading my book, uh, it, it is not very much into the genetic aspect. That's just one example I use. And I use it because it's about an invisible thing which is the thing that's supposed to be bad in GMO foods. You have to admit it's invisible and has no name. So where do you go from there? Uh, it, it, it is actually absolutely baseless in that if, there, if it doesn't exist, it can't possibly be harmful. And that appears to be the case. Um, but with, with other uh, substances like carbon dioxide and, 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 and radiation, which not a substance, but a ray, uh, those are real. The real problem there is you can't see what they're doing so people can make up stories. And for example, uh, one of my favorites is the polar bear. They say it may go extinct because of climate change. Well, actually, polar bears wouldn't ex exist if it wasn't for climate change. That's what created them in the first place. In, 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 in five million years ago, there was no ice on the Arctic Sea. 
no ice on the North Pole, period. Uh, there were still forests growing on the Arctic islands there north of Canada. Well, the Canadian islands, but north of the main mainland of, of Canada in the Arctic Ocean. There, there were giant camels there five years ago when it was warmer than it is now. And, and in fact, we're at the tail end of a 50 million year cooling period. This is the place to see an ice age. And that's why it's so cold on both poles and why there's so much ice. This is not a warm period in the Earth's history. It's a cold period in the Earth's history, which makes it all the more ludicrous for people think it's getting, thinking that it's getting too warm. Because the fact is, if you start at the equator in the tropical forests, you will have the highest biodiversity on Earth in the warmest places on Earth. Whereas in the coldest places on Earth, you have the lowest biodiversity on Earth. In other words, warm places are more conducive to life than cold places are, and ice is basically the enemy of life. It's pretty hard to grow crops on ice, as a matter of fact, impossible. Whereas even in sandy soils, you can fertilize them and till them and get them to grow food. And today in hydroponic agriculture, there isn't really even any soil. It's all in the, in the water. It's all dissolved nutrients. And you basically use sand as the medium to grow the plants in, or even have them suspended with their roots just in the water solution of nutrients. That works just fine. As a matter of fact, in some ways, it works better than dirt. So we've made huge advances there. But I'm coming back to the polar bear that wouldn't exist if it wasn't for climate change, because the polar bear evolved from the Eurasian brown bear, which over here on the western side of the globe, we call that the grizzly bear. It came across the Bering land bridge during the glaciations that have occurred during this Pleistocene ice age. Uh, and it came way after the polar bear evolved on the other side, on your side of the world. Uh, that's where the polar bear evolved from the Eurasian brown bear, which is a northern species, although it goes all the way down into the mountains of Italy and into the Pyrenees, and but mostly up across the north coast of Russia and, and, and Norway, where these brown bears are basically forest animals or open ground animals like the grizzly bear. And uh, they're used to cold, but they're not used to going out on ice flows because there weren't any when they evolved tens of millions of years ago. But when the ice came, the Eurasian brown bear started going out on the ice to hunt polar, to hunt seals through the ice, and eventually, through divergent evolution, evolved into a separate species from the Eurasian brown bear, which probably took at least 500,000 to perhaps even more years during this ice age to become so distinct as they are today. They're half again as big, they have white fur, they have a different digestive tract because they're almost entirely, entirely carnivorous, although they, in the summer they do eat berries and leaves and things uh, when they go off the ice onto the islands of the Arctic. Uh, but if it wasn't for the climate change that occurred coming into this ice age, there'd be no polar bear species on this planet because there can't be a polar bear unless there's ice with seals coming up through it. So that is the truth. And to now worry, even now that we're in this cold period of climate that the Earth has fallen into over the last 10 million years or so, they, they say the Pleistocene Ice Age is 2.6 million years old. 
During that time, there have been at least 40 glacial advances and retreats back and forth. And even during the glacial retreat, which is where we are now in the Holocene interglacial period, it's still colder than it was for the previous 200 million years before this ice age set on. That was the Karoo ice age ended 250 million years ago. That was the last one before this one. And in between those two, it was warmer everywhere on the earth, especially in the northern and southern climates, because when the earth warms, it doesn't warm at the equator particularly, maybe even not at all, but it warms as you go further north and further south, it warms more the further north or south you go, thus making the average temperature of the earth warmer than it was during the period of ice ages. The, the case for like the, the global warming, the, the whole climate change debate, you do really debunk a lot of it in, in the book. What you say here, I have to have a, a quote from you. you. You actually say that um, today there are demands being made that would actually cripple society and the global economy permanently. The push to phase out all fossil fuel consumption in 30 years is certainly the biggest threat to civilization in the world today. You have to analyze what you're doing. Like, it's obvious that if you're driving a car that runs on fossil fuels, or that you're heating your house with fossil fuels, or that you're cooking with fossil fuels, that you are using fossil fuels. So those are easy. But there's a whole bunch of other things. Pretty well, everything you own was made using fossil fuel energy. All the minerals that we have in the world, all the concrete we have in the world, all the steel, all the aluminum, all the glass is being produced using fossil fuels. Fossil fuels are more than 80% of our energy to run our civilization. And without energy, everything stops. And when everything stops, time stops. Because if nothing moves, there is no time. It's as that fundamental as that, the use of energy. And so, of course, if we just turned off 82% of our energy, and especially if we try to replace it with intermittent energy that works at best a third of the time, wind and solar being the two things that people are thinking will save us all, this will be a complete collapse of human civilization and mass starvation. Uh, you know, just take the issue of fertilizer, which has now come up as as producing NO2, uh, which is a greenhouse gas, such a minor one uh, that they're making a mountain out of a molehill, but that's what they're doing. And so now a number of countries, Netherlands, Canada, and Sri Lanka, much to its discredit, uh, have started thinking about reducing the amount of nitrogen fertilizer that is permitted to be used in agriculture. I guess people don't realize that the use of nitrogen fertilizer is responsible for at least half the human population existing. Maybe they don't know that. Maybe somebody should tell them. Because that process of combining nitrogen with natural gas or hydrogen produced in another way uh, makes NH4, which is ammonia. Ammonia is the basis for all the nitrogen fertilizer. Nitrogen gas cannot be used directly by life, by plants that is. It has to be in the form of fixed nitrogen. That's 
one of the reasons that the nitrogen fixing bacteria came into existence long ago, because they are able to fix nitrogen and live on, the, on or near the roots of plants and provide nitrogen to the plants. It's one of the reasons life is so prolific on the planet today, one of the main reasons. And the two people uh, who are credited with both one inventing the process of combining nitrogen with hydrogen, a very complex uh, mechanical and chemical process with four stages that require very high heat and very high pressure to make that happen because nitrogen is basically an inert gas that does not like to combine with anything else. So you, com you can combine it with, with hydrogen with this process, which is called the Haber-Bosch process after the two scientists who invented it. Haber figured out how to do it as a chemical thing in a laboratory. Bosch scaled it up to an industrial level to today where millions of tons of nitrogen fertilizer are being made from air and, and natural gas or even uh, directly from hydrogen that is produced in other ways by hydrolysis, for example. It takes energy to do this process, of course, but the result is a fertilizer that doubles and triples the yield of crops. And removing it from our modern day agriculture would result in mass starvation worldwide. And so would the reduction of fossil fuels because they are also essential in agriculture. See, the people in the cities don't realize where all their stuff is coming from. They, they think the people out in the country are destroying the world by drilling and cutting and fishing and hunting and farming and mining and logging and all the things they do out there and digging minerals out of the ground. But that's what the cities are made out of. They're made out of the stuff that those people are producing. And if it wasn't for the cities, how would the people live there? In, in, in 40 story buildings and taller. You know, you, you're not gonna be able to grow your own food if you're on the 30th floor of a condominium, especially if it faces north, like when, where there's no sun in the day. What you do is you depend on the trucks to come in at night while you're sleeping and restock the supermarket shelves. And you don't even know it's happening. You just go down there and oh, the shelves are still full of food. Where do you think it came from? How do you think they made it? You know, this, these are the questions people should be asking themselves if they're going to propose, seriously propose, that we do uh, two things, reduce agricultural fertilizers and end the use of fossil fuels, which is actually impossible at, in any short period of time like they're proposing. Uh, it, it, they should understand how this all works, and, and most people don't especially people who live in urban environments. And, and even if they do get out in the country, it's just to have a picnic or to go camping for a few days. They're not really uh, doing anything that's helping to keep the people in the city alive, like many of the people in the country are, are, are engaged in that. And yet they are portrayed as the enemies of the planet because they are digging and chopping and farming and all the things they're doing out there. But the main reason they're doing it is for those people who live in towns and cities. We've seen it in the last year with Sri Lanka. It didn't have the fertilizer. Is there any way of replacing these fertilizers with non-artificial you know, methods? Like, 
I know there's seaweed or uh, you know, or, but is any anything scalable that that we can use? Artificial. You use the word artificial, as uh, it, I, I think it's used to mean the opposite to natural, and this is a false dichotomy. Nothing on this planet is artificial, and just because we make something doesn't mean it's artificial. The word artificial, it tends to be applied to things that humans do and make. And that's ridiculous because we aren't artificial. And this is the whole, you know, one of the main reasons I left the Greenpeace movement after 15 years on the front lines in the top committee as a founder was because as it evolved, as it evolved and money became more important because we ended up with 500 to 1,000 employees and it was it turned into a kind of business rather than being a voluntary uh, situation. And uh, before you know it, it, it actually turned into a racket peddling junk science uh, and just adopting campaigns that worked well from a marketing point of view, like ban chlorine worldwide. Uh, that was one of the reasons I left, because that's the stupidest idea that ever came down the pike. Chlorine is one of the most important elements for health and nu nutrition. Uh, for example, table salt is made with chlorine, and it's an essential nutrient. Um, putting chlorine in drinking water was the biggest advance in the history of public health. 80% of our medicines are made with chlorine chemistry, and 25% of our medicines actually have chlorine in them. So when my fellow directors in Greenpeace, none of whom had any science education, I had an honors bachelor of science in biology and forestry and a PhD in ecology, which I was doing when I first joined Greenpeace. And they, it just fell on deaf ears to them that banning chlorine worldwide was one of the stupidest things they'd ever said in their lives. Uh, they just carried on with it and I had to leave. But on a more philosophical note, Whereas we started with a campaign to stop nuclear testing and the threat of nuclear war, therefore indicating that we cared somewhat about human beings, like civilization and, and stuff. By the time I left, the environmental movement was calling humans the enemies of nature, the enemies of the earth, as if we were some kind of only bad species on the planet and all the other ones were good. And this is sort of like original sin, um, you know, fire and brimstone religion, where, where you ascribe all the evil to humans and everything else is good, even diseases, I suppose. So I, I, I had to leave from, from that sort of thing because I'm not a fire and brimstone kind of guy. I believe in, in, the, in a lot of people are really good and have good intentions and do good things for other people uh, and, and for nature. And that is how we should look at it. The whole, this whole pessimism that has completely taken over the Western world, when we are the richest people that have ever lived on the face of the earth, and also there's more forests today than there was 100 years ago on this planet, and everybody thinks they're disappearing. When, in fact, if you look at Europe, both Eastern and Western Europe, take that whole block, that whole subcontinent. In 1750, 1800, when wood was the only source of energy, the forests of Europe had been reduced to less than 10% of the area 
of Europe. Today, they cover 43% of Europe. That's because people realized that they had to figure out how to grow trees just the same way we figured out how to grow food 10,000 years ago. But it wasn't actually until the European forests were disappearing due to the industrial revolution, steel mills, heating every building, and every steam engines, whatever needed heat, it was wood that was being used to supply it. And it was fossil fuels that helped to make it possible to reforest Europe, but it was also silviculture, the science of forestry and breeding trees and planting trees and looking after them uh, and caring about the fact that we need large areas of trees for both nature preservation, wilderness species, and for energy and lumber and all the other things we timbers that we get from trees, as trees are about 90% of all the biomass on earth. It's in, in, incredible when you think about it, the amount of biomass there is in forests compared to the rest of life. It, once they've been managed, you know, I think you touched on stuff there about the forest fires, like they're trying to make it out that it's um, from climate change or global warming, when in fact, I, the graph, there's actually a really good graph, a graphic in the book, and it, there's less fires now. Is that, is that what the case you were making than there was in the 1930s? Well, in, yes. In the early years, people weren't geared up to stopping forest fires. There was no, no such thing. There was lot, very few people in the West of North America in particular. But the, the forest fire issue is a complicated one. Obviously, the air isn't so hot because of climate change that the forests just catch on fire. You know, so it's kind of ridiculous to say that climate change is causing the forest fires, when in fact, mismanagement is largely the problem with forest fires. But also, there's lightning. And, you know, there's been forest fires forever, ever since forests evolved 250-odd million years ago. There's been forests on the earth, and when it gets dry enough and windy enough and a lightning strike comes, you can have massive wildfires. So we're never going to get rid of fires, but, and, and in Europe, you don't get many forest fires because the forests are managed properly. Over here in North America and in Australia too, there's this romantic idea that you should just leave the forests alone. Well, that would be fine, except when you do, the dead wood builds up on the forest floor and all the limbs that fall off and the trees that die end up on the forest floor. And when they catch fire due to a lightning storm or a cigarette butt or a campfire that wasn't put out properly or an arsonist or a power line which falls on the trees, which is what happened in California, the campfire, which really just destroyed an entire town because uh, they built the town right in the middle of the forest instead of realizing you should probably change the vegetation from pitchy pine trees to something else if you're going to build suburbs in the middle of it. So there's so many aspects to this forest management question. So forest fires have been increasing in the western U.S. in recent decades, but are still nowhere near as much as there was before Smokey the Bear and the campaign to control forest fires began in the 19. 30s and 40s. The, the Forest Service has actually thrown away all the statistics of how much fire there was before then, but it's it's still around, and the graph is in my book, and, and, and the travesty of them thinking 
they're saying they don't know where those numbers came from when it was them who produced them in the first place. Uh, so there's a lot of trickiness going on in this, and it's too hard to explain the whole thing. But basically, the problem is today is green politicians in urban environments are making the forest policy from afar. They're making it actually in the U.S. They're making it from Washington, D.C. for the whole of the western U.S. federal lands, which is a, a whole other issue. Uh, but the, the, it's management that is necessary to prevent massive forest fires. The U.S. Southeast, for example, all, all from Mississippi to Florida and all down there, they don't have many forest fires and they have the biggest timber industry in the United States there. That's because the forests are managed properly to make sure they don't burn down because they're valuable. Whereas in the West, in the national forests and national parks where there's no value really coming out of those forests because they've all been protected so no one can cut anything in there, it just gets left alone. And after 20 years of the buildup of fuel wood and the same in Australia, uh, the, the, you, it, when you get a fire, it's way too hot. It goes up into the crowns of the trees, especially in eucalyptus and coniferous uh, species of trees in, in North America. And you get a huge, massive, like hundreds of thousands of hectares of, of, of forest burning every year. And that can, that can be reduced dramatically if management is done properly. Yeah, because like tim timber is a renewable resource and and it 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 doesn't it doesn't have that long of a turnaround time either so like it's it can be utilized what what do you think is driving all of this you kind of touched on it there where they've they've kind of made up their mind that humans are the problem so like life can't exist without without fossil fuels and without everything like you said it's the backbone of the economy all our lives we we need it for absolutely everything so are we on some kind of like self-destruction or what, what, what do you think is driving it? Because it seems to be a top-down agenda, like coming from the, the very, you know, the sustainable development goals and all this kind of crap. Yeah, I've, I've sort of described it as a global suicide pact or something along those lines. Although, even though many of the other countries in the world, especially Russia, China, India, South Asia, Africa, pay lip service to this, that's not what they're doing. This disease is mainly in the rich countries in the West, and that would be Canada, United States, most of Europe. Eastern Europe's a bit of a different story, as you know. They're not as rich in Poland and Hungary and the Czech Republic's fairly well off, but some of those countries are, are not what you'd call rich, like, they, like, like the Western European ones. And then there's Japan, Australia, New Zealand, for some reason, Japan is still kind of in the Western sphere in its economic, etc., trading pattern and all of that. Uh, but those countries are, are at least they say they are trying to do this thing of net zero, which is absolutely impossible. In, and then at the same time, they say they're going to have all the electricity produced with wind and solar technology which uses 10 times as much material resources to build as a gas plant, for example, or a nuclear plant for the amount of energy you get out of it. And then they only work a third of the time. So the other two thirds of the time, they're saying they're going to use batteries. Well, when do you charge the batteries? 
The only time you can do it is when the wind and solar is working, while at the same time they have to supply the city and the industry with their electricity. And then they have to produce two times as much electricity as they produce into the batteries. So there has to be three times as much wind and energy capacity as, as is actually needed on a daily basis by the cities and the industry. So the whole thing is completely a fantasy. It's like unicorn material. There's economic feasibility and there's technical feasibility. One is, can we actually find enough minerals to make this many batteries? That's part of the technical part. And then how much is that gonna cost is the economic part. And it's completely ridiculous. It, it, it would impoverish the whole society to try to do that. And, and then it would fail. That would be even worse because then you'd have to start all over again. Especially like recently, I, I forget which European country it was. Uh, it might have been Germany, but it may have been another. They shut down a coal plant, but they kept it there just in case they would need it in the future. But then the decision was made to demolish it. So that costs money too. And now you don't even have a coal plant just in case the windmills don't work someday. And so this is the kind of self-destructive tech policy that is emerging. It's almost like a scorched earth mentality, uh, but, it, but imposed upon your own country by yourself. And that's what's happening now. And I'm glad I'm 75. I feel for my children and grandchildren, though. I, I don't know what's going to happen to them. They're well off now, but uh, the fight to stop this from coming about is what is needed. And I don't see, well, I do see signs of, of turning. I'm a very optimistic person. It's not easy to be that these days. Um, but it does seem that people are beginning to question the self-destructive nature of many of the policies that are being adopted, both at the political and the social and the economic level. Uh, it's, it's, you know, the whole thing about mutilating young children, uh, for example, uh, th that's not uh, anything to do with fossil fuels, but it's an indication of a self-destructive society in my view. Um, and, and the idea that the humans are are an evil force is uh, a very destructive idea and that and and that we are going to destroy the the world's climate which is so ridiculous that 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 one i just don't understand how people cannot know that co2 is lower now than it has been in almost the entire history of life and that we are in a cold period of climate in earth's long history those two things are easily shown to be true. They are true. They are not false. Now, let me tell you how to separate the people who have some idea about what they're talking about and the ones who don't. Anybody who calls carbon dioxide carbon, you should immediately dismiss everything they say about the subject. Carbon dioxide is not carbon. Any scientist can tell you that. Carbon is soot diamonds and graphite it's it's an amazing just as an element it is amazing because it can appear in all three of those different forms depending on how its atoms are bonded together 
But carbon dioxide is carbon plus two oxygens, a rather different thing than carbon. Plants can't use carbon directly. They can't use soot as their food or diamonds. But they can use carbon dioxide. As a matter of fact, it's the only thing they can use to get their carbon from, which is the basis of all life. That's why the chemistry of carbon is called organic chemistry. And the chemistry of all 91 of the other elements that exist on the earth is called inorganic chemistry. Because carbon is the miracle element that forms the backbone of all life, along with hydrogen and oxygen, which come from water, of course. So add carbon dioxide and water together with solar energy and the photosynthetic process in green plants, and you get, with chlorophyll being used as a catalyst, you get sugar, glucose, the carbohydrates. That is the basis of the beginning of all life and all the energy for life and all the food for life is coming from carbon dioxide. So anybody who calls carbon dioxide carbon should be dismissed immediately as being a propagandist because they're trying to make you think of soot. And it, that isn't what the plants eat. They eat carbon dioxide and that is the basis of life. So it shouldn't be portrayed as something entirely negative. As a matter of fact, it should be portrayed as something entirely positive, the opposite. It's the opposite to being warm now. It's cold now. It's the opposite to there being a lot of CO2. There's very little now compared to the past. Those records are very easily available right on Wikipedia. So there's three things that you shouldn't uh, listen to. Then. The people who call you a climate denier, if you don't go along with the full-blown negative narrative, none of us are climate deniers. We know there's a climate. We don't deny the climate. What kind of a term is that? Or climate change denier. We don't deny climate change. We only wish to engage in a discussion of the particulars, because there are a lot of them. And these people make it out as all you have to do is say climate denier and you won the argument. No, I'm sorry, it doesn't work that way. It's a very complicated subject. And if you can't speak in climate language, you're not worthy of having, having the argument if you just dismiss people as climate deniers who don't agree, agree with everything you say. And then there's the issue of the 90% of scientists' consensus about the climate catastrophe or whatever, climate uh, emergency. Well, I'm sorry, but science is not decided by committee or consensus or voting. Science is almost always discovered by individuals, in fact. If you go back to Galileo and Newton and Darwin and Einstein and Faraday and on and on and on, most of the important discoveries have been made by individual scientists not by committees or teams of people. Once something is discovered, then it becomes a fact, and then is when you need your committee to decide the policy. So separating science from policy is one of the key things you must do in your brain. Because policy is the result of decisions, 
decisions by committees and 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 parliaments and etc by boards of directors those are policy decisions and if those policy decisions are based on bad science they will never be good decisions only if they're based on good science can they be good decisions even with good science you can get bad policy if people don't like what they hear but the fact is science is about facts and policy is about what to do about those facts with those facts with that information how do we apply it to our collective well-being would be a nice way of putting it and right now a lot of it is being applied to our collective destruction and that is a shame it, it definitely is a shame and i agree with most of your ideas some people they, they think that like that oil is renewable i personally think that that they run out uh, myself but what's your feelings on do you know much about that the way it is now there's oil there and they just they don't want to take it up out of the ground it's like well we have some oil off the coast of ireland so incentivizing countries to leave the resources in the ground if they can well i'd like to know what good they think it's doing just leaving them in the ground uh is that because they're hoping they can save them for future generations um that i i guess that's a noble cause but you have to live through your generation and your children's generation into the future i would say that number one yes they are a finite resource but of course with the development of being able to use fracking which is of being able to go into sediments which are much harder than the sands and and coal seams that were easily mined now we can go into structures that are the result of sedimentation over the ages where there are where, where oil and gas were made by marine sediments and coal was made by forest being buried it is it is a limited resource but we have tapped into a much larger potential especially on the oil and gas side with the evolution of fracking and the fact that the united states has adopted fracking from one end to the other and there's been no negative impacts of it whatsoever makes europe look like a bunch of idiots to to think that it's going to be causing a problem there when it doesn't cause a problem over here it's the same kind of sediments and so that that is really weird but it's there for you in the future and and with with i i know that now great britain for example is is taxed to find enough gas and and oil uh, because they've sh- shut down most of the north sea and they've shut they, they've made it so you could never even begin to frack any of the gas which is 50 years supply proven already and they'd be in really good shape right now if they had been smart 10 years ago and joined the north american uh industry and other parts of the world too in uh in taking advantage of the new technologies but just the same i am very strongly in favor of conserving oil and gas coal as well because coal can actually be made into a liquid fuel if you look at south africa when during apartheid they were banned from importing uh, uh oil from outside uh they took their coal reserves and turned them into liquid fuels for transportation and if you if you combine that with nuclear energy you can convert 100% of the coal into liquid fuel without burning any of it during the process 
The process they use now actually uses two-thirds of the coal to turn one-third of it into liquid fuel. But by using, using nuclear energy to provide the heat for the process and the, the hydrogen for hyd hydrogenating the coal to make it from a solid to a liquid, uh, you could make liquid fuel from coal. Liquid fuel and gaseous fuel are the two most limiting in the world. A piece of wood, you can't put it in a pipe into a gas tank. You can't put coal into a gas tank. You can put gasoline, diesel into a gas tank and natural gas into a pressurized tank and put it through a pipe to a carburetor or to a jet engine. So these specialized needs for liquid and gaseous fuel should be offset by more nuclear energy being used where all you're doing is providing stationary sources like buildings and factories with heat and electricity. This would reduce fossil fuels by 50% in however long it took us to build enough nuclear reactors to do that. There's about 440 operating reactors in the world today providing, sorry, I forget, it's in the 5 to 12% of all our electricity. Maybe it's 15% of all our electricity, but it's not 15% of all our energy, of course, because most energy is still from fossil fuels. Nuclear could, if you had 4,000 nuclear plants, and think of the fact that the 440 that are operating today are doing so 24-7 without harming anyone, and that only one nuclear accident in a stupid reactor designed by the Russians during the Cold War resulted in of the death of 86 people. Most of them were fighting the fire that was caused by the nuclear explosion in that reactor. The other two incidents, Fukushima and Three Mile Island, were not nuclear explosions. They were meltdowns of the core. They did not kill anybody. And were, were and Fukushima, even though it was quite dramatic, was you know totally made uh, uh, out of extreme. It, 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 it didn't really do that much damage. Well, except for financially, it wrecked four nuclear reactors. But that is just stuff. And no people were killed by the Fukushima accident. Unfortunately, 2,000 people died when they evacuated Fukushima, even though the radiation level was not sufficient to require evacuation. They did it anyways, probably for PR reasons. And they killed 2,000 people by moving seven intensive ward occupants into gymnasiums in some other cities because there was no room in the anywhere else for them. So that was pretty stupid. But uh, never mind that. Nuclear energy is the safest energy technology we have. There is nuclear fuel for thousands of years into the future, and we could radically prolong the, the use of fossil fuels for the important things they need that they that only those fuels can do which is flying aircraft for example and running big pieces of mobile machinery like mining trucks and farm equipment it's going to be pretty hard to get enough batteries to do all that and well the battery thing isn't going to work anyways except in cars but even with cars if if we took all of the small vehicles which includes pickups and all the passenger vehicles in the whole world and electrified them, 
we'd have to double the amount of electricity we produce in the world. And right now, we're drastically reducing it, or planning to, uh, by phasing out all these nuclear plants and gas plants and coal plants. And some people even want to tear down the hydro dams. So uh, it's not a very good prospect in that way. Uh, it, it seems crazy. They're talking about maybe to be blackouts in the UK or maybe here. Like what you said, it's like some kind of suicide pact. It's, it's, what, it, it's what it really seems like. We're after covering a lot there, Patrick. We just take a couple of questions off the audience here and then um, we'll yeah. wrap it up if you don't mind. That's perfect. And, Hey, Patrick, how are you doing? Yes. Patrick, I'm doing I have a just fine. Good, good man. I have a question about Agenda 21. So in her book, Behind the Green Mask, UN Agenda 21, Rosa Cora proposes that under the guise of sustainability and saving the environment, the United Nations plan calls for governments to eventually take control of all resources, land use, and not leave any of the decision-making in the hands of private property owners. On top of this, the implementation of things like carbon credits could lead to the erosion of individual freedoms, restriction of movement, etc. Is Agenda 21 really a deceptive, sinister agenda? And if so, what can people do to stop it? Well, that's a very, very good question. And I, I, I'm a director of the CO2 Coalition uh, in North America here. and uh, our executive director, Greg uh, Wrightstone, put out a really good uh, video on the Epic Times uh, yesterday, I think it was, if you want to look that up. Um, and his whole point is that the whole sort of climate change movement is not about controlling the climate. It's about controlling us by using the climate change fear mongering as a way to scare us into doing what they say and at, at a, you know it was i think schwab who said uh that you will own nothing and you will be happy well if you will own nothing then who will own it because it's necessary for things to be owned by some person or entity otherwise there would be total chaos because someone has to be in charge of the things and what they do and what you do with them. So for someone to say that, they are basically saying, we are going to be the boss, and you are going to be the slaves. And that's about what it amounts to. So th this whole Agenda 21, it's it's been coming ever since the Club of Rome back when I was a grad student many decades ago. Uh, it's all come along since then, and then there was the whole thing about controlling the population by some kind of lottery or something, I guess. I don't know what they were thinking of doing there, but it's happening by itself anyways, because as people become more urbanized, they don't want large, uh, so large a families as people who live out in the country and, and uh, often use their children for labor. Um, that's the way the civilization evolved in the beginning. Uh, the, the, the fact is, is that if you do away with private property, you do away with personal freedom. And that's been known for a long time. And these guys are just trying to pull off the same kind of heist that has been tried many times over the centuries by what you call communists or fascists or uh, people who, who, 
who want to be in charge of everything. And in the very beginning of my book, you will see that I say that politics, in, in the bigger sense, is basically about the struggle between those who want to be free from society's control versus those who want to control society. That's left and right in politics. And there's no happy medium because both sides want it all. Everybody wants to be free and many collectives, many power centers want to increase their control over those people who are trying to be free. And so that is the, it's a tension like a tug of rope uh, going both ways all the time and never stops and never will. And finding the balance is the key because we are a social species and we must work as teams, whether you call them countries or committees or boards or, or, or you know, whatever com companies, we must work as teams because we have so many different functions and we know how to work as teams together. But at the same time, we must recognize our individuality. And right now, it's the individuality that is being threatened, even in the free Western democracies, as they have been fashioned and called up till now. There's, there's lots of countries that have never had the kind of freedom that we have had in, in these countries. And uh, I personally believe that no country will ever really flourish if it goes into complete statism where there is a dictatorship that lasts for longer than it should because they, they always end up degenerating. And so then they have to be, things have to be renewed. So there's constant revolution and constant turmoil. And sometimes everything gels kind of nicely where people feel there's a decent balance between control and freedom. And right now we're in a, a phase where things are going a little too fast in the direction of control. Yeah, That's not a question, Patrick, if you wouldn't mind to answer. Uh, Patrick, thanks for coming on tonight. Uh, just a quick one. Um, you go back uh, a long time. You'd have a lot more details about these organizations. You mentioned the Club of Rome a moment ago. There is a particular group called Population Matters in the United Kingdom. I'm sure you've heard of them. But they've yep. calculated through arable land and... Uh, fresh water and so on, what the optimum populations are for each uh, state or each country, I should say, rather. Do you give these numbers or statistics any credence, or do you think they're just uh, a satellite organization, the Club of Rome? What do you think? Because they, they appear to be the only group out there with objective measurements on population as it relates to fresh water and food in terms of sustainability. Oh, what, are they, what are they concluding, that there's twice as many people as there should be or something like that? It varies from country to country, but their uh, measurements appear to be that the population should uh, resemble what it can sustain in a given landmass. So the United yeah, Kingdom is 17 or 18, and so places like Saudi Arabia, very low, but other countries can hold more. That, that's the general gist of their calculations. Yeah, that's an impossible calculation. Uh, there's two reasons why. I mean, if, you're, if you live in a desert and you have all the oil in the world, it, you can buy everything that you need. You don't have to grow trees. You don't even have to grow food, just as a you know extreme example. Um, but 
if you live in a place that has abundant soil and everything should be wonderful, yet it's a terrible Venezuela-type dictatorship, 20 million people have left Venezuela in the last few years. Even though it was it's verdant, it's got resources coming out the yin-yang, and yet it's a total failed state. And so those, those kind of calculations don't interest me very much. What, what I would say is that one of the reasons that we, we were talking about nitrogen fertilizer, there would only be 3 billion people if it wasn't for nitrogen fertilizer. That is the, that's just taking that one parameter of which is one of a thousand or more. So depending on the parameters, the, depending on the, the politics and depending on a lot of things, inventions, uh, the, 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 the population that can be supported by a given ecosystem can change dramatically. And, you know, for example, the, in, in, in about 1200 AD, so 900 years ago, there was a 200-year drought in the southeast, southwest of the United States, in Arizona and there. There was a people, the Anasazi there, the cliff dwellers, who'd lived there for maybe thousands of years, it appears. They just disappeared because there was no rain. And that was the end of there being any potential for civilization to live in that place for a period of, of over 100 years. So that can happen in many places. It's probably not going to happen in Ireland or Vancouver Island anytime soon. We, ha we have much in common, in fact, except you're pretty flat and we're like nothing but a bunch of mountains. But still, it's a West Coast uh, temperate zone where you get lots of water coming in from the ocean. And, uh, and it, it, it grows things really well. It's a little bit on the cool side some of the time. But uh, it, it, it is not a question you can answer empirically with, with numbers so much. Uh, and it's going to fluctuate all through time as climate changes in different places. Like climate doesn't just change globally. There are, there are times when the climate changes dramatically in a region of the world without changing much anywhere else. It's, so global climate change is really not a very useful term. What really matters is local climate. And local climate changes in different ways at different timescales in different places. And it all adds up to one average temperature for the world, which doesn't really tell you that much other than what the average temperature of the world is. And the average temperature of the world is much colder today than it was for the previous 250 million years before this ice age descended upon the earth and made it so cold as it is today. And that's why it's so ridiculous that people are saying it's too hot and that it's got too much CO2, when in fact, due to our CO2 emissions, we are just barely causing the earth to recover from a CO2 drought that resulted in the stunting of every plant on the planet for many millions of years as it went down and down and down. 150 million years ago, CO2 was somewhere around 2,000 to 2,500 ppm. It went down to 180 
at the peak of the most recent glaciation 20,000 years ago and came back up to 280 before we started adding. And we've got it up to 420. And if we could get it up to 800, the plants would start sighing with relief. And if we get it up to 1200, they'll go yay and beat their chest. And that would be beginning to be an optimum level for plants. In other words, three times what it is now. And that's just a fact. Every, everybody who knows about CO2 and plant growth knows that fact. That's why every commercial greenhouse grower pretty well in the world doubles and triples the amount of CO2 in their greenhouse compared to the ambient level outdoors in order to get 20 to 60% increased yield in their crops because that's how the crops react to additional CO2. And I, as you can see, I can carry on for many a moon, but I know it's time to stop. And thank you very much for having me. Thanks a million, Patrick. You're an absolute wealth of knowledge. I'll be coming back if you'd like, because I got about 18 more hours in me. Oh, that'd be brilliant. Brilliant. We'd love to have you back. Thank you very much for having um, me on. I enjoyed it. That's great. Thanks a million, Patrick. Take care there in Ireland.